one of my favorite things to do is to get to know and spend a lot of time with great authors and speakers. And one of those is my very special guest today on this week's Cloud and Clear. Please welcome Val Wright. Great to be here, Tony. Thank you for doing this. All these things generally happen uh, incidentally, you know, these relationships that um, I build over time. And for us, it was at the Women in Technology Conference uh, hosted by the Channel Company in New York. That's right. I saw you on stage and I, I was really compelled by your story and your experience. And I'll let you give more of your, your own background. But what was unique about that event was, of course, it was, you know, a thousand women in channel and me and, you know, two or three other uh, men. <laughs> and we were invited there specifically by Amy Catalano and Carolee Gerhardt from the Google Cloud organization, the channel organization. And we got to be on a panel and um, it was a really unique experience, kind of a once in a lifetime experience, at least first in a lifetime experience for me. And I thought that event was uh, remarkable because I, I didn't, I, maybe I knew they existed, but I certainly had no opportunity to ever be in the building when it was taking place. So. It was remarkable, and and you gave a talk on on stage. I think that's a good place to start. Uh, let's talk about what you what you spoke about at that conference. Absolutely, yeah. So I was talking about increasing the power of influence, and this transcends women, gender of, of any type. But it was particularly um, relevant because what we were doing is we were talking about what stops us influencing and how if you're intentional about how you influence you can significantly change the financial results of your co company ultimately but then also selfishly your own career yeah and actually thematically in your last couple of books that's been uh i think kind of a common thread right and and um what what in your experience has uh, giving you a passion around this particular set of topics. You want to talk about that a little bit? You did. You, you talked about Microsoft on stage a little bit and some others, but I mean, the story probably goes back further than that. It does. When I, my first full-time job um, was in department store retailing in England, part of the Harrods group. And I was a management trainee where we went around all these different departments. Um, I left school at 18. I studied part-time and got my degree part-time at night school. The Harrods company sponsored that for me. And what I learned was that there was a pattern of success and there was a pattern of failure. And I couldn't really talk about it back then or be able to explain it. But, you know, when I look back on my career, even back then, I could see there was a pattern of success and failure. And it was all about how people led and how people innovated. And even in department store retailing 28 years ago, um, I was able to see and identify patterns of success and how we traced and tracked sales and how we were able to analyze profit per square foot and how we were then we created a staff scheduling system that allowed us to monitor and map how we were able to increase sales per square foot using staff scheduling by adapting staffing levels and sales levels and so back then we could see and i know your company is very focused on technology the technology alone doesn't work. 
Mm-hmm. You need the leadership leadership to support it and the implementation. So going all the way back to department store retailing through working at Amazon, through working at Microsoft and Xbox, the technology only works if you know how to create what I call a symbiotic relationship between creative, technical, and business minds. Yeah, and it's actually retail is, I think, one of the most um, cutthroat, ruthless no margin for error, competitive uh, environments, I think, to kind of grow your professional career in the beginning, right? Like that is not a easy space to have success in. I mean, let's talk about how challenging it may be now. It's even more, you know, it's, it's exponentially more challenging in a lot of ways. But um, that is a great place to kind of uh, cut your teeth, I would say, in, in, in learning those lessons. <laughs> Absolutely. And then I went into car manufacturing. So I worked for Land Rover when BMW owned them. Um, And then I worked in the telecoms industry. And then I worked in, you know, Xbox and uh, worked in different in IT consulting where we were working on the human genome project. And it didn't matter what industry I was in. It was always the same that the success came to when you look at the top of the tree and you look at the executives, the CEO and the board and how intentional they are about how they lead and how deliberate they are. And, you know, going back to me listening to you at the Women of the Channel event in New York, it was very clear that you're an ally and you're an ally beyond women. You're an ally beyond typical um, stereotypes of what CEOs look for. And that's what differentiates a leader that can successfully have an impact is someone who's able to go to a conference where you're one of three out of a thousand people who identify as male and stand there and go, hey, I don't have all the answers and here's when it went well and here's when it didn't. Here's what we're doing as a company. We're not there yet on our journey. So to be able to do that and put yourself out there, I I talk about this idea of being publicly vulnerable. Mm. And if you can be publicly vulnerable, you truly just show who you are as a leader and then people can connect with you and relate to you. And I think there's so much of a spotlight on executives these days. I mean, you must see it um, in terms of what people are looking for and how people view you or report on what you've said or done, that you have to put yourself out there, but you've got to be cautious about the way in which you do it. Yeah, these are really interesting times because we all have the potential to to live as much of a public life as we want to, right? And um, we choose to have a very open and public orientation towards the market. I mean, specifically on LinkedIn and those kind of professional channels, because we do want to let the world into our brain and our heart and our philosophy and our way of thinking. Uh, for for a couple of different reasons is one is I think we want to attract like-minded individuals to do business with and to partner with and to sell with and to hire and grow with. Um, but the other part is, is we hope our hope, and I think this is even more important because I think the second is a byproduct of, of this first thing, which is, you know, you, you hope to have a positive impact on as many people as you can. And we don't know, what like this particular podcast that we put out may positively influence just one person and they may, you know, change um, a strategy or, or, or a tactic and how they do things and that could make them wildly more successful. And like, you don't know how you're doing that every time or if you're doing that, but I think a lot of it is intent. If, if that's your intention, 
And if it happens, like that's, that's the purpose. And I think in that journey of having a positive influence on, on the world, whether or not these are going to be your customers or your employees, you don't know. Um, I think the other is sort of the ancillary impact of the, the initial intent. And I think that's also part of how I like to think about leadership. Like I lead with the intent of making everybody at Silap wildly successful. And like everything else drives that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think stating your intention is so important because especially with everything, whether you're significantly growing right now or whether you're hitting a sharp right turn in your business because your customers or your partners have changed, being able to intentionally say, okay, this is what, this is what I stand for as a leader. This is what we stand for as a company. This is this is what is important to us right now. Yeah. And to be able to do this kind of reset of, okay, what we're doing for the next three months might be different than the rest of the year, but for the next three months, here's our intention. Is everyone clear? Left, right, up, down. Okay, go. And what I've seen the most successful companies be able to do is literally grab a pen and pen on a call like this and go, one, two, three, this is what we're doing, get on with it. And so many times I've seen people go, wait, but we need to create a, a deck or we need to tell our story. We're like, okay, but you've just told your story in three points, go. And that speed piece I'm seeing as the big differentiator right now of people who are able to successfully like transition their company or go faster or run on to the success that happened or adjust where things not going to plan. It's interesting. And I love to hear perspective like the one you're representing because it's, it's been for a long period of time cross industry. Like our, my beliefs are just formed on like one industry for well, it's a long time now, 20 years, but like we operate in a, in a in in what I feel like is maybe not like every other industry, and in that we're facing and have been facing um the the growth of the entire industry, right? Like it's just it's it's there's unlimited demand for cloud for the foreseeable future. So I, I don't so I don't know if what we're doing is 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 um is due to good leadership or it's because of the market we're in it's very hard for me to tell sometimes so i don't want to over index on what we're doing but hearing that you see these patterns in other industries which have other fluctuations and demand and things like that is is um is interesting but that's why i like to study people like you because they give that other perspective that that's it's very true and you know i remember in my microsoft days i did a lot of acquisitions and so, you know, I worked on the acquisition teams of companies we tried to acquire but couldn't, or we acquired and then we had to integrate. And I always remember, you know, this big behemoth of Microsoft, you know, with all this money in the bank, you know, acquiring these 50 person or 200 person companies. And, um, you know, the, there's, there's a reason that the, you know, the statistics say that 80% of all acquisitions fail is because lots of companies really do a terrible job of integrating them. <laughs> yes. um, but what I learned was that so many big companies want to be a small company and so many small companies want to be a big company. And if only you could just take the pieces of each and like do this with them, you would just like create yeah. so much success. Yeah. And the biggest, the biggest thing that big companies or medium sized companies can learn from the smaller companies, what I call this 10 o'clock, two o'clock test, mm. which is if you make a decision at 10 o'clock, can you implement it by two o'clock? Wow. 
because small businesses can, medium-sized businesses can, and despite what you think, bigger companies can too, because there's so much like blah and mire associated with decisions as you grow. And, you know, it's the number one frustration I hear from, you know, leaders and executives when they're not happy in their job. It's, I thought I could make a decision, I can't. I made a decision and someone up there undid it. Or my favorite is, you know, they thought they were at a point of debate, but they were really at a point of conclusion. And so you do this 10 o'clock, two o'clock test and say, what would it take for me to let my leaders make a decision at 10 and implement at two? Because that's the speed that a small, nimble company gives you. That's right. And I challenge anyone that it's, it's possible. It just requires some work. Well, I'm so happy to hear you talk about speed because that's been such a driver of how I think and operate at SADA, even as we've gotten bigger. And I know that's precisely what, you know, this book really focuses on. And it's not a prop. I just want to let people know I'm, I'm reading it and I got it. And it's not a prop for the podcast. Um, but because, because I, I do ourselves see trying to balance balance this a little more as we get bigger. But my biggest fear is losing speed in decision making, using losing agility, getting overly political, getting overly um, process oriented. It's like, how do you implement just enough process? That's one question to not make big mistakes. And then how do you also manage the responsibility of the other executives you've hired to to weigh in with their expertise without offending them as a CEO and your intention to continue to be fast? The first question was about how do you make sure you have just enough process? Um, and then the second one is around the, the role priority. So let me answer the first. The, there's a theme to both of them, which is you have to have people around you who are telling you you're crazy, that your idea is daft, or that you've made a mistake. And if you get to the point that you're not being told you're wrong or that you're not having like contentious debates, you know you've created this insulation layer, either intentionally or unintentionally. And you know, many people who are listening to this will probably say, hey, I know, I know leaders who have an, in an insulation layer around them and I try and give them feedback and I saw yeah. their reaction and they ain't getting any more feedback ever again. Right. And yeah. so you have to ask yourself, are you getting, are you getting that feedback? Because if you are, you, you, they will help you temper the right level of process and the right level of structure. And, um, you know, I was on this, uh, call with a company that I will be careful just to call a company. So I don't <laughs> disclose, but they sh shared this 42 page deck about a change they were making in how they served their customers and partners. And it was all about roles and responsibilities, and it was absolutely ridiculous. And clearly somebody had decided, or they hired some crazy consulting company that needed to create this stuff. But it was, it was ridiculous and it wasn't needed. You know, maybe like three pictures were needed. And, and so you need to have people around you going, what is that? Why did you create that? But also always being able to ask this question in terms of, like, I love asking the so what questions. Like, oh, we've created this new process. So what? What's it going to do? And if you can't tie that to profit, market share, cost reduction, customer satisfaction, why are you doing it? And if you, if you use that test with any process or any change, that will, that will help there. And then your second question around 
how do you make sure that you give your leaders space but that you know what's happening and that you again have been able to give them input um th this comes down to you know what i call this kind of decision dilemma of mm -hmm. it being really you need to be really clear about as you hire new people or as you grow um and even like most people when they are asked to do this one thing which is you can do it in like five minutes people are surprised just how unsure they are around decisions so if you mm -hmm took a piece of paper now and wrote three columns. And on the first column, you have all the decisions you currently own that you should own. And then in the far column, you have all the decisions you currently own that you don't want to own. You don't think you own, but for some reason, whatever the reason is, they've landed in your lap. And then in the middle, you put the column, all the decisions that I don't know if I should own. I, don't, I know someone else owns, but it's confusion. Now that exercise alone takes you five minutes to do. If you do that with all of your team, you'll be surprised just where confusion or overlap exists. Mm. And then you can then you can make a conscious decision as a leader. You know what? I want you to own more push or hang on a minute. You've you've run away with this and you're spending money or you're making technology strategic decisions with a client that do you realize that's fundamental to our platform development? Mm -hmm. No, I need input there or I need final sign off or I don't care, like go run. You can mm -hmm. use this amount of money, you can make all these decisions, but if it impacts our investment above X or if it impacts us going into a country outside of the US, then I want input. Like if yeah. you can do break that down and then give people that framework, people will run even faster because there's no spin yeah. of compute. Yeah. No, I, I think we've, we started to definitely do that more. You know, I have an executive team that's half brand new, like within the last two years. And now we have a, a set of we have board members, external board members, which have been super helpful. Um, I think that the challenging part is those lines can sometimes move. It's hard to put those things in stone. And I'm just talking about myself. Like I tend to gravitate towards whatever I think is I have a unique perspective on or I want to take on myself because it's I have some insight or I, I feel like this is the most strategic thing happening right now. And it's probably a little unconventional, but I think keeping that close to like the action is part of what I need to continue to be a good CEO. You know, I think delegating some things entirely is challenging. But I think what, what I'm starting to learn is that what it requires is, is an executive team that is full of, you know, people who are confident in themselves and that you have regular dialogue with and are very close with so that they're harder to offend, <laughs> where it's hard to offend one another um, because we trust each other's intentions, I think, and we trust each other's word and um that makes it easier but you know in larger organizations you don't necessarily get to pick your team or pick your executive team and hand select everybody and so i could see how in larger organizations that that's tougher and our experience honestly is selling into organizations of different size and complexity and we're always trying to figure out <laughs> like what is the matrix of the org chart, decision-making power? How do good decisions um, get made? And how do great ideas die? And in the in in sales motion, that is, a, that, is a, that is an important thing to, to master, especially in the enterprise. 
Absolutely. It's it's very true. And people who say they are decision makers, <laughs> you know, after multiple meetings, you often find that they are a brilliant gatekeeper who can say no, but they cannot say yes. And then you yeah. go through their gate and then it's like, here's another gate you've got to now walk through. And so yeah. and, and that's that's where that power of influence really comes in, in terms of how you can build relationships and how you can ask questions where you don't intimidate but you are able to get to the true answer. It's, I mean, it's an art. It's, you know, yeah. people often say, say to me, Val, just, you know, can, can, can I have one of these in, in my ear? You tell me exactly what to say when I'm in a scenario. Or, you know, I do give, you know, I give people yeah. scripts. I'm like, you know, when people say this, say that. And, you know, it, yeah. it really is an art and it, it takes practice. And it, it, you know, I wish people would spend just as much time as they do creating the perfect graphics and the perfect fonts on a pretty slide deck as they would thinking about the actual language they're going to use before talking to a key employee or a key partner or a key customer, because yeah. um, the return on investment of the latter is far better than the former. Far better. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. So as I'm reading this a book, uh, Rapid Growth, John Wright, I can't help but think of um, our customers, and I, I would broadly categorize them in sort of two buckets, even though, of course, we have other you know verticals and they're all different from each other. But broadly speaking, there are the digital native companies of various sizes. We're talking about someone who just got their first $5 million and, and those that have a $15 billion market cap, right? Um, and then there's the traditional industrials, the sort of traditional enterprises. And what's interesting about the lens that we have is, uh, because we sell to both, it's like, in our view, and especially maybe now in this sort of economic uncertainty and the global pandemic, the traditional enterprises are fighting for survival and relevance. And then for every one of them, there's a hundred of these which are actively looking to disrupt what they do and how they do it and how they serve their customers. And selling to them is, is very different. And generally, broadly, what we notice is doing deals in the digital native space is faster and easier. And what a question for you is, is that because there is it just a size thing or are is the reason that the traditional so many traditional companies are in trouble and to begin with is because they have a hard time making decisions <laughs> i i i think there are probably subcategories in that section um and those subcategories are likely it, it goes beyond decisions. It's it's how how open are they to trying and experimenting? How open are they to the speed in which they can test and implement and fail and learn from that failure and yeah. then try again? And what I'm seeing, um, you know, in the technology space around digital transformation is those plans that were set for a three year rollout are now taking three to six weeks. And yeah. honestly, I bet your digital natives are, will could shrug their shoulders and go, all right, then let's go. Whereas those in 
um, larger companies may or may not have experience with the shrugs and shoulders and let's go. Yeah. And, and so I would suggest that the subcategories within those large digital enterprises where, and, and this is why it goes back to leadership again, you have to find those leaders who have worked elsewhere, who get it, who don't have 25 years in the same giant company where they have hundreds of people and um, documents this thick for yeah. implementation because they're, they're frankly like, scared because they don't know how to implement fast not because they don't want to but just they've never seen it done before yeah look i i understand that their lives are different and their constraints are different because they have much more technical debt they have much more complex supply chains and partnerships and just institutional things right that are difficult to navigate around but i think it certainly feels like the traditional group generally speaking is much more about let's not break anything versus like let's go change the world and and i love serving the digital natives oh my god it's so much fun i'm so proud of these customers uh but there's a few examples of of, of those traditionals that do act like like they've they've gotten the muscle to act like digital natives and are like doing amazing transformational things and actually, that makes me the happiest because I realize like how many jobs are at stake for the you know traditional industrials. What a big part of the economy! Like, I want to see a hundred-year-old company pivot and become wildly successful in the new paradigm. Um, so, what what does that what does that take? Is it is it purely a leadership thing? Because when I read your book, I'm thinking, does this really just apply to you know nimble? Digital natives, or, or or can anybody take this at a hundred year old company at a, a leadership level and 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 move faster? Yes, if the people at the top or the people who have the power to change are willing to change. And you know, I'll, I'll take Microsoft as an example. You know, I was at Microsoft during the Xbox division when Xbox was the first idea came about for Xbox. And the fights and the arguments to not have it run on Windows was incredible. But yeah. the fact that Xbox was able to not be a Windows-based device was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And then they were in a separate building, three miles away in Redmond, Seattle, you know, away from the main campus. And that was the start of the breakout of Xbox doing something very different to Microsoft. Now, the Xbox story, I tell it in this book and, and my first book, you know, was a real roller coaster and, you know, culminated in a billion dollar write off because of the red ring of death because of a hardware failure that led to Steve Barmer, who was the CEO at the time, you know, saying he was going to shut us down. Mm. And that's where we were able to create this innovation lab before innovation labs even had a name. And we took, you know, 50 people from around the world, the creative, technical and business people away and, and imagined. And, you know, it was called all access gaming at the time. It was, it was how, how do we come up with something different? The Wii had just launched. The Wii was doing great. No one at Xbox thought the Wii was worth anything. And I'm like, I like it. I play it. <laughs> I'm not shooting and racing anything, but I like it. Um, which is an example of a diverse voice, you know, 
if you don't have a diverse voice, you hear the same echo in your cave. Um, But then that's where the Connect camera came from. And the Connect camera allowed us to leapfrog the Wii because we had voice recognition. We had the wave your hands and you can dance. And it it kind of changed Xbox from being a shooting and racing game to being a entertainment hub of the living room. Now, if, if big companies don't hear stories like that or don't take those stories and say, how did they do it? what applies to us what might we learn from that then they will continue along their path and that's where having the voices and the stories and the ideas to help people think is the difference between a company saying we're on a track we're too big to fail we've got too much technical debt we're not going to change or hey what's possible here let's see what rules we can break yeah i mean look us us working in the enterprise is probably a four or five year recent phenomenon. And we're just learning a lot about what it takes to engage with them. We're still baffled by some of the decisions they make or not make to be sure. Um, but you know, there's in, entire industries like healthcare, like retail, like media entertainment that are in the process of major transformation and they have to transform to, uh, to survive and thrive. And it, it's, it's, uh, I find these insights, very helpful because it makes me kind of think of maybe where that, you know, set of decision makers are, but where they can be. Um, but I think it, it is aligning with people who actually want to do things and have the framework to, to safely fail, you know, and in sort of a rapid fashion. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a crazy time. I think all this digital transformation and innovation talk that has seemed like a nice to have long-term thing for the enterprise is now like now has to be now so i think from that standpoint your book is i think more relevant than ever it's yeah i mean it's it's true and being able to find those people who are ready or are ready to listen or are ready to change it's it's part of the disruption because you aren't going to be able to satisfy your whole addressable market but there's a subsection of that addressable market that is ready and that does have the funding and does have the backing. You just need to find those who are willing and can make those decisions. Um, let's talk about your book a little bit. Cause you're, you know, you're, you're a, a very successful author in this space. This is your second big book, if I believe, right? Yep. And you know, you yourself are not, you know, immune to COVID-19. You can't do a book tour. So tell me about what this journey's been and what's going to happen in the next, you know, six months to a year and what you look forward to in, in your career. Sure, of course. So I, I was so grateful when uh, my publisher, Kogan Page, said, um, you know, we're pausing most books, we're delaying most books, uh, we're going to push them all out till the fall, uh, but yours isn't one of them. And wow. I was I was so relieved and then slightly scared. Because launching a book when every bookstore in the world is closed, when every event has been canceled or switched to digital, every company retreat workshop has been paused or delayed. It's like, okay, what am I doing with all these books? Then? <laughs> How am I going to sell these books? Um, but what I realized is, you know, a number of people got to, you know, read the early preview copies is people would say, how did you know Val? How did you, like, when did you write this? And how did you know we were going to need this? I'm like, I didn't. This was, you know, I, I finished writing 
on Christmas Eve. So that was when I, you know, finished finished the book. Um, and so I was none the wiser. But what I what I was hearing the feedback was that the book is really relevant. And so I think that's what gave my publisher the confidence, like we're going to launch this anyway. And so I get to practice what I teach, which is you've got to innovate. You've got to rapidly adjust. You've got to change your ways. And so what I've been able to do is, you know, I've done all sorts of things from, you know, unboxing is a thing. If you I saw have those. kids. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not, I'm going to do unboxing videos and I'm going to teach executives what unboxing is. <laughs> and so we did, we did an unboxing campaign. Um, I, I do a lot of executive book clubs because, you know, executives, you know, wanting to find different ways to connect. And so I host a lot of executive book clubs. And then, um, I'm doing an awful lot of video keynotes, virtual keynotes. You know, I was, talking in Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Australia, New Zealand, um, India, China, you know, those are all the places I've spoken wow. in the last three, three weeks. And so, wow. you know, I was t- telling someone last week, I've done more international work in the last three months than the previous seven years. Amazing. And so, and so, yes, it's incredibly annoying. Yes, I hate staring at a Zoom, Google Hangouts, team screen, you know, for a large part of my day. Yes, I wish I could be on stage like you and I were in front of a thousand people with the channel company, you know, as we were back in December. Yes, I wish I could, you know, shake hands and say hello to people yet again. But I've learned that it doesn't have to stop and right. that... You know, I think you and I had an exchange about, you know, uh, one of the publications I wrote, which is, you know, the guilt of getting getting over the guilt of success. Right. People want people want to hear good stories right now. Yeah. And so being able to share, you know, what's worked and what's been successful, you know, people want to hear some of those stories. So I've tried to try to tell some of those stories as well. So that's some of the ways I've been pivoting. I like I like how you tell the stories again, because I think you and I are aligned in that, you know, like, it's not like, yeah, everybody likes to hear some validation, but it's not like our entire concept of how well we're doing is based on what other people are saying. Uh, But I think, I think success, like stories are potentially inspirational. And that's why we tell them because we want to, you know, show people that it's possible. Look, there's definitely upside to this current situation. Uh, Your international tour without the jet lag, but with what much more coverage is one of those outcomes. And I think it's all of our jobs to find those opportunities now. Um, but um, I just want to thank you for being my guest. Uh, I love the book. I'm admittedly only halfway through, but I'll be I'll be done soon. Um, and it was just really great to have you on. It's a different type of guest than we normally have, but I think very relevant to right now for Cloud and Clear audience. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Tony. Thank you for listening to Cloud and Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and Clear and our website, sada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app.